Please Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. The buzzer vibrates through my bones. As the door to the visiting area is unlocked remotely, and the burly orderly shoves it open with her hip and leads me through by the elbow. I know she resents that I'm being granted today, that she and the other staff strongly disagree with me having it, having anything. But I don't care. These people in their crisp uniforms with their squeaking shoes and their wrinkled noses are nothing to me. Less than nothing. We go down the corridor to an open, airy room with broad, bare windows. I go straight to one and look out, my eyes thirsty for the distant glimmer of the ocean on the horizon. The orderly lets me stand there for long moments, examining that far-away jewel, until the buzzer sounds again and there's a clatter of footsteps coming up the corridor. I am forcibly seated then my hands cuffed in front of me in a chair that is fastened to the floor at a table that is fastened to the floor. This amuses me. At 86 and permeated by cancer, what do they think I'm going to do? Opposite me, three unfettered chairs wait for my family. I feel a little thrill at the word. Family. In they come. A woman, presumably my daughter, in her mid-fifties, and two young people, a boy and a girl. They are twins. I know this, though I have never laid eyes on them before. I haven't even seen my daughter since she was an infant. They sit opposite me. The orderly remains at my shoulder. Another hovers by the door. Ava, I say. Mum, she replies, her face grim. Thank you for coming, I say. She shrugs at this. It was more for Deirdre than for me. Ah, Deirdre. I turn to the girl who the doctor told me is 20 and examine her critically. She has the black hair and green eyes of her mother. The same full mouth, small nose. She is beautiful, but fiercely, not prettily. I turn to the boy, and a small electric thrill passes through me when I look at him. Dylan. Ava, my Ava, waves a hand. He doesn't speak, Mum. He had to come. His usual carer is sick. He's just along for the ride. I regard Dylan for a long moment. He looks steadily back at me, then his eyes slide away to the window, perhaps to the sea. He has the same looks as his sister, glittering green eyes like the ocean over white sand on a sunlit day, curling hair black like a crow's breast. Mum, Ava interrupts my musing. 
Can we get on with this? Oh. I smooth my own braided hair with one hand, grey now, but once as black as theirs. Of course. The interview. For a thesis, I hear. Go ahead, Didra. Ask me your questions. The young woman clears her throat. She has a notebook and a mobile phone. She does something to the screen, then looks up and clears her throat again. I'm I'm going to record us. Is that okay? It means I can listen and, and not worry much about the notes. I nod at this, and she looks down at her notebook. I, I basically want to know, that is, um, if, if you can talk about it, I'd like to talk about how you came to be in here. I lean back in my seat, and the orderly shifts from foot to foot, anticipating violence, but they are my family. I feel at my throat and hook the thing that hangs there out of my shirt. Do you know what this is? I ask Deirdre. She leans forward to stare at the little stone which hangs around my neck on a long leather thong. A stone? Deirdre sounds unsure. That's right. It's a special sort of stone. It's called a hagstone. When you look through it, you can see the fae. What are the fae? Deirdre asks, her brow wrinkling. Fairy folk, I go on. The fae are the others. The ones on Earth who humans don't see anymore, but who have magic, like humans have, mobile phones and electricity. I'm sorry, what does that have to do with... Deirdre begins. Do you want my story or not? I ask sharply, and she flinches, slumps a little in her seat. Weak, I think. Go on, she says tightly. The Fae are a people like humans but different, strange. And they have no truck with human ideas of the time or with what humans call progress. They have parties that go on a hundred years and no songs with a thousand verses. They live by an old code of fairness and already have all the wealth and knowing they could ever want. So they play all day instead of working. You could say play is their work. They are like children and like the very, very old wise all at once. Okay, Deirdre says. And? She is willing to hear it, I think. So I tell it. So, once upon a time, long ago, before I was born and when my mother, your great-grandmother, was a girl, the part of our family that our ancestors now lived on an island... It was a beautiful island, green and lush and wild and just big enough for the family to farm and live and go on with their enterprises, which was raising horses. They were the best horses for miles and miles around, strong and fast with clean limbs and deep chests and hard hooves. They were light enough to pull a fine carriage and strong enough to haul a small plow and people came from very far away to reserve them. The family bred them, raised them and broke them. Great-grandmother, or Esther, as she was called by everyone then, was only a small girl in stature, but she was fearless and skilled among the horses. She had her own ponies to ride from before she could even walk. 
and at 15 had already raised and broken and fully trained her own filly. That filly was named Greta, which means pearl, because her coat shone like a pearl, creamy and fine. She was a five-year-old now, a fully grown mare, strong and fast, and Esther would ride her every day, galloping across the green pastures of their island so swift she thought she would scorch the land. One day, at the start of spring, Esther was riding Greta on the sand in a cove not far from the farm. She had not a scrap of leather on her horse, having trained her to listen to her voice and her body instead, and was practising making even circles and figures of eight in the sand, using only those to steer. Greta and Esther spoke to one another without speaking, and their turns and pace changes felt like a song they were both singing together, and then, very suddenly, Greta stopped. Greta was staring into the rocks at the far end of the cove which stood up dark and jagged against the knees of their fathers, the flint cliffs, which stretched along the next path of the coast. Esther looked too, and there among the rocks, she saw a horse. Esther knew every horse on the island, and even at this long distance, she knew it wasn't a horse of theirs. Greta called out a clarion blast of whinnying then, and the other horse pricked its ears and began to prance out of the rocks towards them. It was a stallion. Esther could tell even from so far away, from the muscles rippling at the neck and the haunches. It was the blackest thing Esther had ever seen. I looked at Dylan's shining hair then. Blacker than coal, blacker than night. The spring sunlight reflecting on its gleaming sides glittered like a shining sea on a sun-drenched day. It danced, turned almost sideways up the beach towards them. Its ears pricked so sharply the tip almost touched above its head. Its large eye was intelligent and wild. But as the thought, it must have had an owner at some time because as it came closer she saw that at its throat... Just behind its ear, there was a fine silver chain. Would this horse try to hurt Greta, Esther wondered? And how would she get them both back to the farm if it did? She couldn't leave a stallion out running wild here. There were mares out at pasture and no fences here, and their horses had a long and respected bloodline which her parents and grandparents had written into several ledgers in the house. They knew where every foal had come, back through 14 generations at least. They wouldn't welcome a generation of offspring from a random interloper. He was very close now, only a few yards away. Esther rubbed the neck of the trembling Greta but decided to approach him herself and see if he was less wild than he seemed. She slid from Greta's back and walked carefully towards him, her hand outstretched, palm up. He didn't move. His eyes were fixed on Greta still, he was tall but not enormous. She realised that as she came beside him. Fifteen hands, maybe a little more, but not as much as sixteen. Well, Esther was up beside him now and placed her outstretched hand at his muzzle, where a typical horse would at least sniff at. But he ignored her. Greta stood frozen, her hard pink hooves planted firm in the sand. Esther reached up then and stroked the flat pane of his black cheek, sliding her fingers gently underneath the chain at his throat, which was barely heavier than that a man would wear. And the spell broke. 
The horse's black eyes flashed grey like a shark going in for an attack. He half reared, baring his teeth, and then, in a motion she could only see as a pounce, he came down onto her, grabbing her by the back of her neck. Luckily, she twisted, so that after the first pinch, his teeth only held her by the coat and not the flesh, but she was still in some distress as he immediately set off at a high-knee trot for the ocean, bouncing her along in front of him. In the surf, he slammed her down but held on, pushing her under the water. Esther tried to stay calm, but it was difficult, with the water up her nose and the sand between her teeth and the weight of the black horse pressing her down. She tried to get onto all fours, but he held her fast. She tried to kick at his legs, but he must have spun her round as she flailed and swung and her feet found nothing. She tried to get her fingers into his nostrils or his mouth to try and pry him off, but she couldn't reach far enough back to do it. Then... Just as she was feeling like she might drown after all, she felt a shudder run through him, and he released her. Choking and spitting up salty water, she crawled back to the beach and saw Greta and the strange horse were fighting. Two sandy footprints on his side told her that Greta had run down and saved her with a good hard kick. Greta was as tall as him, but much finer built and Esther could see she was going to be badly hurt if the fighting went on. His hooves and teeth flashed. The whites showed at the edges of his black eyes. Greta's sides heaved and bloody foam dripped from her lips. Esther struggled to her feet and whistled, and Greta, gratefully, Esther thought, immediately broke from the fight and ran to her. Esther turned the mare towards home and ran alongside her a few paces before taking a bouncing jump and vaulting up onto the mare's back. As soon as Esther's thighs were evenly settled against Greta's back, the mare stretched out low and flat and ran. Over the sand, across the low ridge of dunes, up onto the pasture land they went. Wild birds exploded from ground nests all around them, but Greta didn't shy or even look. Her face was towards home. The two of them blazed that way, hooves and hearts hammering, and behind them Esther could hear the thundering of the black horse's hooves bearing down on them. Esther felt weak with relief when she saw the fences of the stockyards at the farm coming into view. She had a plan already, you see. Sitting up taller, she asked Greta to slow and to run into the high round pen with the box attached. The pen was small, maybe 20 yards across. The box pen was tiny, only big enough for a horse to stand on, maybe one yard by three. The pen and box were both enclosed with strong nine-foot-high wooden fencing. The younger or wilder horses went in there to be branded or if they needed a vet before they had learned to have good manners for one. Esther rode Greta straight through the round pen, sidled her into the box and slammed the box gate behind them. The black horse came into the round pen just as she was climbing off Greta and over the box fence. Esther sprinted on shaking legs around the outside of the pen and slammed its gate shut too so the stallion was caught and then ran on back around to the box, which had gates on both sides and released the frantic Greta from it. There, he was caught. He was terrible, the horse. They called him the Black Brute, the killer, and a great many other more vulgar names. The first few days, the men put ropes on him, thinking to teach him to stand and accept human touch. But the fight never went from him. They'd get a rope on him at dawn and at dusk. There they'd be, ten exhausted men and a rearing, plunging, fighting horse, fresh as he'd been at the start. 
and then they left him to it. No feed for some days to see if he could be taught gratitude, but he remained the same strong, shining creature. Even when they took his water from him, he was unchanged. The final straw was a young boy called Morris. He was 19 and had only been there a year. Lots of young hands came to them in those days to live and work and learn the business for a few years before setting themselves up training and breaking horses on the mainland. Nobody knew what happened to Morris. Esther could guess. But even at 15, she was still just a little girl to most of the men full of stories. The horse had been with them for several months by then, and his life had already become one of minimal contact. Three times a day, his water trough would be refilled, a pan of food slid under the fence. He would eat snatching mouthfuls, his head erect, eyes watchful between his bites. Occasionally, one or two of the younger hands would decide to have another crack at the black brute, and they'd go in with ropes and bridles, and after a day or two of fighting, they'd stop again. That was until one July morning, when a hand took the feed pan out and found Morris, face down in the trough, the back of his shirt torn up, and him cold and drowned. Esther's father decided Morris must have been drunk, somehow fallen in. But back then, nobody checked these things properly. The police came, of course, and the doctor... But it was written up as a farming accident, and Morris's body was taken back to the mainland to be buried by his grim-faced parents. After that, nobody went into the pen. All the autumn and into the winter, he lived there alone, with his three feedings and waterings. When the weather turned hard in December, the men took to heaving bales of hay to him too, but... The discussions around the big kitchen table at mealtimes turned macabre. Whose is it? The men asked one another. The question had been asked of every person they knew. Sailors, horsemen, visitors, storekeepers on the mainland, the police, the folks at the sail lots. Everyone, anyone came across, but there was no answer. Nobody had lost a horse. No boats with stock on board had sunk. Well, if he's nobody, he's ours, Esther's father would say. Spring was coming again. And with it, the young stock would be brought in and branded and checked over, and the round pen would be needed to do it. Last year, branding was done already, and nothing was wild enough to really need the pen. So the men had managed. But Esther's father was tired of the black horse, tired of trying to tame him, of feeding him. Fine as he was, he was too wild to be allowed to father foals. But also, fine as he was, Esther's parents didn't want to later find out they had destroyed a rich man's property if they disposed of the horse. What else was there to do, Esther's father would ask the men, his palms outstretched wide. There's nothing useful about him and he can't stay there forever. They decided then he would be allowed to stay until spring came. And then, if he was still unclaimed and untamed, he would be shot. This saddened Esther. Even though the horse had tried to kill her, she liked the wildness of him, admired it. She had watched him fight those men for long days all summer and thought his spirit was unbreakable, 
He was almost otherworldly. She wasn't stupid enough to go into the round pen with him, but she did start to take his food pan to him in the morning and evening. She spoke to him and watched him and wondered if he was listening. She worked Greta near the pen so she could see them and saw that he was still interested in watching the mare. It was Esther's own granny that brought the change. It seemed to Esther that her granny was at least 200 years old. She lived on the mainland, but every Christmas was brought by several clucking aunts to the farm for the Christmas festivities. Father would take her for rides in the buggy, and she spent much of the rest of her visits rocking in a chair by the stove, making odd statements. She was a tiny, wizened old woman. Her face had wrinkles on the wrinkles, and she was completely blind, both eyes having turned milk white. But still, she seemed to know things which could only have been seen. This year, for the first time ever, Father told Esther, recently 16, to take her out in the buggy. Esther had trained Greta to pull the buggy and was pleased to have the opportunity to show off a little. The aunt settled Granny into the seat and pulled blankets around her small body to keep the cold out. Esther fastened bells to Greta's harness for some festive cheer, and soon they were trotting away across the frozen ground, jingling brightly as they went. They went out along the dirt road, which encircled the island and rode in silence until... when they were almost back at the farm, Granny suddenly spoke. Stop! Esther, very surprised, stopped and saw that Granny had turned her face to the round pen and was holding a stone up in front of one of her blind eyes. Granny asked to be taken closer, and when they were almost up against the fence, she turned back to Esther and said, You've caught a Kelpie. Granny told Esther a story about the Kelpie, a water demon that looks like a horse, and that drowns unsuspecting humans for sport. Granny often launched into these sorts of tales, and Esther, who had heard this one before, listened politely, waiting for a signal that it was over and that they could go on. But instead, Granny stopped abruptly and said that she could hear by Esther's breathing that she didn't believe her. Look, the old woman had said, thrusting the stone at her. Look through the hugstone and see. And Esther felt foolish to find that she was nervous when her Granny pushed the hagstone into her hand. She looked at it in her palm. It was small and several textures and colours. Greyish, smooth, reddish, lumpy, bluish, crystalline. A small hole passed completely through it. Well, Granny demanded. So Esther, still nervous, lifted the hagstone to her eye and looked. It wasn't a horse. It was black and had four limbs, yes. It had an equine head, yes. But in the same way as a seahorse has an equine head, and yet it is clearly a fish. Its black eyes were lidless, staring. As its snorting nostrils trembled, so did two rows of gills slits on its neck, opening and closing in sequence. The mane and tail, typical in ordinary vision, trailed long onto the ground through the hagstone, seaweed tangled up in the long hair. The hooves were different too, Esther saw. They looked like horses' hooved, but they were on back to front, the groove of the heel facing towards. 
Oh, Esther had said. A Kelpie, Granny replied, and they sat there a little longer. Granny talked some more, then told Esther the Kelpie was a man as much as a horse, and that if they managed to get the bridle off, they would see. But there's no bridle, Esther had corrected. Can't even keep a rope on him for a day. The chain, Granny had replied. The silver at his throat. That is the bridle. Take it off and see, but have a care. You know what sort of horse he makes. Who knows the sort of man he'd be. Esther had shuddered at that a little. She offered the hagstone back and Granny shook her head. Keep it, she said. You need it more than me now. And then the old woman had folded her hands back under the blanket and asked to be taken back to the farmhouse. That was the day after Christmas. On the day before New Year's Day, Esther had slid the grain from the stallion's feed pan back into the grain barrel and in its place had thrown a small mound of seaweed she had collected the evening before. She didn't know what a Kelpie would choose to eat, but surely not grain. She slid the pan under the fence and then held her breath. He approached slowly, his head low and nostrils wide, puffing at the pan, sniffing deeply. Then he began to eat instead of snatching a mouthful and throwing his head high. Now he kept his nose buried in the pan. Esther knew if she looked through the hagstone she'd see him as he really was. But through only her own eyes, in the thin winter morning light, his eyes seemed half closed with pleasure. When he had finished, he stood there a moment, his head still hung low in front of her. Forgetting the danger, she reflexively put her hand between the bars and cupped his velveteen chin in her hand. He looked at her then, not angrily, not as if scanning for a target, but really looked at her. I'm sorry, she whispered. I didn't know. But I do now. From then on, she fed him seaweed and later chunks of fish. He liked fresh mackerel best. Her parents were busy with heavily pregnant mares and newly arrived farmhands and barely noticed her spending more and more time at the round pen. Until one day her father came past when she was inside it carefully combing out the mane of the black brute. Shocked, he had called out to her to watch out. But she had only calmly put the comb down on the ground and then walked over to him. You've gentled him then, her father asked her. He saw she wore one of his mother's stone charms around her neck. I'm not sure he's gentled exactly, she had told him. Only he has come not to mind me too much. Through January and into February, Esther continued to go every day to the pen and spend time with the black horse. To begin with, she didn't like to look at him through the hagstone because he was strange and frightening. But as time went on, she realized if she looked through it, she could ask him questions and get a sense of his replies. 
He didn't speak out loud, but she got a feeling in her own mind as to what he was thinking. In this way, she established that he had come ashore because he had seen such a beauty on the beach and he wanted to go back to the sea. But when Esther asked what he'd do if she let him out of the pen, she got only an impression of doom, of violence and death. And she didn't trust that he would return to the sea without first wreaking some sort of revenge on them all. So, he remained in the round pen. And she continued to spend time there with him. In mid-February, on a whim, Esther climbed the fence and lowered herself carefully onto his broad black back. He didn't buck or rear or run, but only stood still and craned his neck round to look at her. She peeped at his face through the hagstone and asked if she was heavy. He shifted his weight a little from foot to foot, and she felt that, no, she wasn't. She had a sense that he quite liked this new sensation of a human on his back. She spoke aloud to him and told him that he could run, but please not to hurt her. And luckily, she took a handful of mane because then he leapt forward into a loping rocking horse canter immediately. They went round and around until she felt dizzy and told him, when I squeeze my leg like this and turn my shoulders, it means turn, please. And again, he wheeled immediately and took them the opposite way. After that, she rode him every day and taught him lots of tricks and moves. He was easier to train than a horse because she could just tell him what she was thinking. But harder too, because sometimes he just didn't respond. And she had to watch through the stone and ask question after question to find out why. As the days wore on, she began to feel about him as she did Greta. She never put a strap on him, and he'd never come tame. Not really. But he was willing to work with her. <laughs> maybe it was boredom, she thought. Or maybe he'd taken a shine to her too. Though she never completely forgot his attempt to drown her, she began to feel a real and deep affection for him. The day before the 1st of March, the men brought all the mares and young stock in and the farm was suddenly teeming with horses. That night, Esther's father asked her to come with him, and they went together to the round pen. He has to go, her father said gently. Daddy, Esther replied. You can't shoot him. You've seen me ride him, he's coming good. He's had all the time I can give him, Esther. Her father replied. There will be foals in days, and we've got young stock that's going this year. They need to be branded and healed, ready for the mainland by April. It's only a month. I, I can't wait. I've seen you on his back, yes. But I've not seen a bridle nor a saddle on him. I've not seen him quiet and obedient out of that pen. Not another human here can get within ten feet of him. I'm sorry for it. He's a fine-looking beast, and I know you've done your best. But it is how it is. Esther didn't argue. She knew how it went. They went back towards the house. But it was a mild night. 
and Esther told her father she might spend another hour or two with the black horse since it was his last night. She dragged down a sleeping roll in a blanket and went back out. She was there all night. Her father sensed she needed the time for goodbyes and told her mother to leave her be. The next morning, her father came out early to the pen with his gun, ready to do what was necessary. But he found, to his surprise, that apart from the sleeping roll, the pen was empty and the gate stood wide open. He called for one of the hands to come with saddled horses and together they set off to look for the pair. From the top of the nearest rise, they soon saw them. Esther up on the black horse's back, laying forward along his neck in an embrace. Her father was a tough man, but not a hard man. He watched them a little while. But when it became clear they weren't coming back to the farm, he and the hands set off after them. As they rode along, heading towards the cove, Esther glanced back and saw them. And soon the pair were off for to gallop. Well, her father went faster too. The black horse had a turn of speed even after a whole year in a tiny pen. And by the time the men came over to the dunes, Esther and the black horse were already in the water. They plunged and bounded until the horse hit the end of his depth. And then they swam. Esther's father was beside himself. Horses can't turn themselves in water. They can only swim in a straight line, and without even a bit of rope on his neck, he knew that Esther had no way to turn the black horse round. He would swim them out until they drowned. He sent the hand back to get help and told them to radio any nearby ships and the mainland and have them send boats. The radio was newfangled back then. Then he stayed his horse on the dunes, stood up in his stirrup, trying to keep sight of his daughter. They got so far out that Esther's blonde hair was just a speck on the wide ocean. Her daddy stood hollering and yelling out on the beach. And then they just disappeared. A boat pulled her out. Almost a mile out she was, treading water. The captain got her into his cabin and gave her a brandy and wrapped her up in blankets and asked her what happened to the horse, but she only sat there with tears rolling down her face and said, He's gone. Just that. Over and over. He's gone. He's gone. Mum! Ava's voice is sharp and angry. After all these years, after everything that happened, we finally come and this is what you give her? After everything you took, you can't even give your own flesh and blood this one thing. I was born 11 months after my mum was fished from the water. I continue, ignoring her outbursts. Sired by the Kelpie that night when my mother removed his bridle, and that is how I came to be in here. My daughter sits up tall, rigid in her seat. Rage flashes in her eyes, and I feel proud for a moment. There is some of my blood pulsing through those veins after all, I think. Mum. You were born nine months after your mother, Esther, married a farmhand, John, my grandfather. 
and you are in here because between 1967 and 1974 you had eight babies and instead of nurturing them as a mother should one by one you drowned them all of them all except one all except me oh, that Humans are always fixated by the wrong things. You want to know about that? I look at Deirdre. She nods timidly. Well, the first one was a boy. I say, faltering. I don't remember what we called him. Douglas. Ava cuts in. Oh, yes, Douglas. I watch Dylan's face as he looks out the window. Very weak he was. Two minutes and he was gone. There were four like that. Another boy and two girls snuffed out. I snapped my fingers. Just like that. They didn't last a single breath. But why, Mum? That's what she wants to know. What her criminology paper is about. Motivations for criminality. Why? I just told you why, I say dreamily, slowly turning the hagstone this way and that at my collarbones. <laughs> oh yes, because you're a magical fairy person, I forgot, Ava retorts. I knew this would be a waste of time. I only came at all because you're... She stops. Dying, I ask, serene. You can say it. Yes. Ava slumps, defeated. Yes. Dying. She finishes quietly. Well, the answer is the answer. I shrug. Deirdre looks disappointed. Dylan looks out of the window. Please. Deirdre says hesitantly. Please do tell me about them. If you remember... If you can. I nod and oblige, in spite of my daughter's fists clenched white on the table. Douglas, I could tell, was knit wrong just by looking, I said. He was small and too noisy. I gave him a few weeks, hoping the blood in him would strengthen, but it didn't work. When he was a month old, I let him slip under the water in the bath, and he was gone so quickly, so easily. I knew I'd been right. A tear is sliding down Ava's cheek now, but I continue. The next, Marie had more hope for. She had the proper look, but she lacked the vigour, and when she was a few months old, I tested her, and she failed, just as the first had. Then I had to be careful. Your grandfather, Eric, grew suspicious. The next was another girl, Sophia. It was three years before I could test her, but I did it carefully, left her near the pool so that she appeared alone, and it was Eric who found her. 
Then I couldn't be blamed. She fared a little better than the others, but not well enough. The next two were easier. I merely concealed them until the birth and delivered them straight into the water. They never surfaced. One of those was only a few days after Sophia. Deirdre was writing notes frantically, though her phone continued to record. Then there were the twins. At this, Deirdre looked up sharply. Yes, like yourselves, I confirmed. I couldn't hide that pregnancy, I grew too large. I carried them too long, past nine months, and the doctors eventually forced them out of me with hooks and drugs. Two boys, Eric and John, feeble from the start. They went the same way as the first two, tested and failed at a few months old. My Eric knew for sure then that he was too weak himself to act. Look at you. Ava is still crying, but angry too. You're not even upset. No remorse, zilch. All those lives you took as if they were nothing. As if they were unwanted kittens a farm cat had left in a dresser drawer. No feeling for them. For my lost siblings or the family you destroyed. And Dad is not weak. He is the strongest man I know. For years we were hounded for it. I moved school every year. No matter what we did, someone would figure it out and it would all start up again. The whispering and the accusations and we'd have to move again. How could you do that to helpless babies? To your own children? No child of mine would drown. I assert calmly, eyeing her carefully. And so they arrested you before you could drown the youngest? Deirdre asks. Before you could do it to Mum? Is that what they told you? I ask, amused. Ava is shaking her head, glaring angrily at me. No, I go on. One hot day in July, when your mother was about five months old and her father was drinking himself into a stupor at the powerlessness he had decided he was, I got into the pool with her and let her go. And then, did Grandad Eric catch you? Save her? Deirdre leans in, fascinated by this nugget of new information. Of course not, I laugh. She didn't need to be saved. She could swim. That's enough! Ava leaps to her feet. Did you enjoy college, Ava? I ask. I heard your swiftness in the pool paid for it all. And how were the world championships? Didn't you win lots of shiny medals? Ava leans across the table for me, her face twisted and red. Nothing good in my life came from you, she hisses. Nothing. We're leaving and you'll never see any of us again, you vile old witch. Mum, 
Deirdre is dismayed. I want to finish this. We shouldn't have come here. Ava starts in on Deirdre, catching her arm, trying to persuade her to leave, and Deirdre argues, pulling away, pointing at her notes. I turn away from their bickering, and on a whim, lift the hagstone, and look at my grandson through it. Leaning to the side, I look under the table, at the backward-facing hoof extending from the bottom of his jeans. My gaze wanders up to the lidless, glittering green eyes. I smile at him. He looks at me, and for a moment his hand opens on the table, stretching towards me, his long, webbed fingers parting as if he's going to touch me. I watch the gills on his neck open and close with his breath. And then I lift the hagstone over my head and hold it out to him. My daughter and granddaughter are still now, silent, watching this exchange. Dylan reaches out and takes it, his fingers brushing mine. His green eyes flashing grey as a little jolt of recognition passes between us. He slowly puts the leather thong over his head and lets the stone fall against his chest. As his mother and sister gape, he smiles back at me. Thank you. He says. This story was written by Beck Stranger and narrated by Miss Lee Rose Neville. For more stories that haunt, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, you can join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com, and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Please Leave Media production.